Hello, and thanks for joining us for the 60th episode of the Poverty Research and Policy Podcast from the Institute for Research on Poverty at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I'm Dave Chancellor. This is our November 2017 episode, and we're going to be hearing from Claudia Persico about a study she did on how toxic waste sites might impact the cognitive development of the kids who live near them. Dr. Persico is an IRP affiliate and an assistant professor in the Department of Educational Leadership and Policy Analysis here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And Persico says her interest in the ways that pollution may affect children grew out of a question that she's been wrestling with since she was a research assistant at the Boston University School of Medicine. I used to work at the BU School of Medicine in the Department of Anatomy and Neurobiology um, studying autism. And I became really interested in why uh, low-income children have higher incidences of learning disabilities than their higher-income peers because of the fact that that doesn't make sense necessarily from a neuroscience standpoint. So I started thinking about what low-income children might be exposed to that might increase their likelihood of having a learning disability and came up with sort of the idea to study toxic waste sites. And so um, in this paper, I was trying to determine the extent to which local federal toxic waste sites, Superfund sites, actually impact children's cognitive development and their human capital formation. I asked Professor Persico to tell us more about Superfund sites and the Superfund program itself, which is managed by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, or the EPA. So Superfund sites are the worst of the worst federal toxic waste sites. So they're on what's called the national priority list. So there are other toxic waste sites that aren't as bad, like brownfields and circla sites, um, but, and those don't make it on the national priority list. So Superfund sites, the most famous example, I think, is Love Canal, are these really, really bad toxic waste sites. And the Superfund program um, was created as part of the Comprehensive Environmental Response and Liability Act in the early 1980s um, as the most expensive federal program to clean up toxic waste. It actually accounts for a very large portion of the EPA's budget. It's a multi-billion dollar program. Um, and so that's why it's called Superfund. It's a fund with a D <laughs> um, because the fund is very large because it's very expensive to clean this stuff up. Um, and one of the other reasons I was interested in writing this paper is that we know a lot about the costs of this program, but we know relatively little about the actual benefits. Um, and I was concerned that they might not end at reduced cancer rates. Superfund sites are actually more numerous than many people might guess, and according to a 2012 publication from the EPA, about 80 million Americans live within three miles of a Superfund site. And in Florida, where Persico completed her study, there were 94 Superfund sites at the end of 2016. Essentially, the neighborhoods where Superfund sites exist really vary. Um, some of them are actually in middle-class neighborhoods, um, and but then some, a lot of them are actually in cities. Um, so the vast majority of these sites are um, toxic waste sites that existed because there used to be a factory operating in that district. And um, one of the um, interesting findings of the paper is that um, low-income and black children and Hispanic children are all more likely to live next to Superfund pollution than higher-income peers or white peers. And so it's not to say that no white children live next to Superfund sites, because actually about 50% of the sample um, was white but that um, there's a disproportionality in who ends up living next to these things. That's a kind of legacy of residential segregation um, because often um, industrial zones uh, were uh, sort of redlined to be African-American neighborhoods. 
Persico says Superfund pollution is complex, in part because there's usually a mix of toxicants, some that we know quite a bit about and others that we don't. So we know an awful lot about lead pollution, We know, and we know an awful lot about air pollution. We know relatively less about a number of the other toxic compounds that exist within Superfund sites. And most of the reason, so most of the research that's been dub, done up to date has been done on rats or um, using longitudinal studies um, of children living next to this stuff and trying to get at the etiology of what's going on. But we know that lead is extremely toxic and actually demyelinates neurons, which means that it kind of remove neurons have this um, this coating that allows um, the electrical signal to run within the neuron, but just not, not just scatter all over the brain every time a neuron fires. And that's called myelin. And what lead does is it actually removes that myelin coat from neurons. And so it's one of the known causes of learning disabilities um, for that reason. And there has been uh, there have been a number of really interesting studies showing that decreases in the amount of lead that kids are actually exposed to um, actually track with massive decreases in crime. So the, the crime dropping in the 1990s, there are three recent studies suggesting that that was all from taking lead out of gasoline. Um, but lead still exists in a lot of these Superfund sites because they're often sites where um, there had been lead smelters or there had been other kinds of um, you know, heavy metal using factories, so factories who are manufacturing a wide variety of different kinds of things. Lead is very, very commonly used in industrial production of just a wide variety of different kinds of stuff like paint, old paint factories and things like that. Um, lead has also now been taken out of paint. But um, there are also other things like volatile organic compounds and, um, you know, a variety of other kinds of heavy metals and all sorts of stuff that the EPA has classified as developmental neurotoxins because there's sufficient evidence that when, you know, um, organic beings like rats are exposed, that they, they suffer um, cell death in their brains. <laughs> and so there's reason to think that this stuff could be really poisonous to, to local children and that there would be a substantial benefit to actually cleaning it up, even just on a moral level. Professor Persico says that just as there's a lot of variation in the types of contaminants found at these Superfund sites, there's also quite a bit of variation from site to site in how people might be exposed to the pollution. We know from one recent paper that during cleanup, there can be an increase in particulate matter in the air if they're removing soil. But really what gets polluted depends on the Superfund sites, and they kind of vary. So you can think of my estimates as a sort of average treatment effect over all Superfund sites. And I've tried to look at them individually and see how the the effects vary, and they don't really vary that much across these different sites. But Superfund pollution can pollute, you know, the ground. That's the most common thing you might think of, like landfills. But you could also imagine um, them polluting something like a lake. And so in some cases, entire lakes or rivers are Superfund sites. It's like the Passaic River in New Jersey, which goes right next to Newark, is actually a designated Superfund site, and they're right now trying to clean it. And so um, people can get exposed um, when this stuff enters the water. They can be exposed when it, it gets stirred up. Um, pregnant women who might be gardening, um, sometimes there were, have, there were people actually living within these Superfund sites. So there was one um, very large Superfund site in Florida that had a number of houses in it. And so these things can be quite large, and the, the way that people get exposed, I think, um, it just really varies depending on what specific thing got polluted. 
Despite how widespread and varied Superfund sites are, Prisco says we know relatively little about the effects of exposure to high levels of industrial toxicants in developed places like the U.S. So to learn more about these effects, in her study, she and her co-authors David Figlio and Jeffrey Roth compare siblings living near Superfund sites, where the first sibling is gestating before the site is cleaned up and later siblings are gestating after the cleanup. That provides a nice natural experiment where kids are living essentially in the same place, but the only thing that changed is that the toxic waste in their neighborhood got cleaned up by the EPA. And so I can see um, the zip code in which they live, and I basically mapped um, the local Superfund sites um, to where they live. And so I was looking at all children living within two miles of a Superfund site, and then I also restricted the analysis to just one mile, and the results are stronger. In Prisco's analysis, she looked at several indicators related to learning and cognitive development and compared outcomes between the siblings. We measured, essentially, whether or not children might repeat grades in school. We measured test scores. We looked at the likelihood of behavioral incidents in school, since um, that's an interesting outcome that could relate to other kinds of um, inhibitory control or brain development, and also the likelihood of different kinds of cognitive disabilities. So we looked at cognitive disabilities overall, and then we broke them out by individual categories. So we looked at the likelihood of autism, intellectual disability, speech and language disability, disabilities and um, and learning disabilities, specific learning disabilities. And what we find is um, when you compare these siblings where one is born before the EPA cleans up the toxic waste site and the other is born after, um, that really they have increases in the likelihood of disabilities, lower test scores, increases in the likelihood that they'll be suspended from school and that this shows up in the school records, and also increases in grade repetition. And the increase in um, behavioral incidents was actually surprising to me when I found it because I had not been familiar with this literature on how lead impacts crime. Um, But now that I am familiar with the literature, it seems pretty plausible to me. And it seems like, you know, that there might be, it might be a lead story. And we try to actually investigate that in in a newer version of the paper. But we also find big effects when lead is not one of the contaminants in the Superfund site. So it seems like there could be Um, maybe a toxic stew or some other compounds that actually might also produce similar negative effects. And despite the relatively large differences between siblings that Persico finds, it's possible that those results may actually underestimate the negative effects of this exposure to toxic waste. So one of the things about the paper that is a little bit scary is that you could if you if you don't believe that the EPA completely cleaned up the toxic waste when they said that construction was finished and essentially that they were that they were going to wait at that point that's the point at which I said the site was clean so I actually did kind of a conservative thing and cut it off a little bit early and if you don't think that the EPA had completely cleaned the site at that point then the second child born would also have been exposed to some amount of toxic waste or that um, those environmental toxicants could have stayed around in the body of the mother uh, because we know that some of them don't leave the body so easily. Lead is another good example of that. It tends to bind to bones and so it's uh, it because it mimics calcium and so it stays in the body for longer periods of time. Um, and so you could think of these um, estimates, which are relatively large estimates, as underestimates of the truth. Um, but it's it's not entirely clear, and I think we need more research on this kind of stuff before we can make an absolute statement about that. But with that said, Prisco says that the large effect sizes she finds are consistent with other studies looking at comparable types of exposure. 
Um, for example, there's this Almond Edlund and Palma paper about nuclear fallout after Chernobyl um, that kind of compares these adjacent cohorts of children where one is kind of exposed to the fall and the other isn't. There's similar papers on lead that show these relatively large test score results. And so one of the things that, um, you know, we find about, you know, approximately a tenth of a standard deviation lower test scores, which is pretty big. It's, um, and also this increase in learning disabilities. But what we what most papers don't look at is the kind of learning disabilities piece of this. And it's not surprising that there would be an increase in diagnosis of learning disabilities given the decreases in test scores. But it's interesting to see that that actually exists in across disability categories and specifically in the ways that you would expect. So we also check to see if physical disabilities or disabilities you wouldn't expect to be affected by Superfund pollution are um, you know, exist across the kids in the same family. So for instance, is, does the firstborn kid more likely to have head trauma or something like that? You wouldn't imagine a super fun site would cause that. We actually don't see any differences for kids except for these disabilities that could potentially be, you know, the result of um, the mother, you know, being next to the super fun site while the child was gestating and while the brain was really forming. So um, I guess I just wanted to, to suggest that there is a small literature that um, is all kind of showing very similar point estimates when it comes to test scores and things like that, even though they are large. So that made me a little bit more confident in my results. As Prisco already mentioned, the children living near Superfund sites, in Florida at least, are disproportionately more likely to be black or Latino and also more likely to be vulnerable in other ways. The children who are living next to these things are particularly disadvantaged already. They tend to be more low income, for instance, and already have sort of lower test scores. And so they, you know, local public schools have essentially been bearing some of the brunt of this burden in that, um, you know, they've they've had increased special education costs because of this sort of environmental policy issue. And so you could imagine this as sort of environmental justice. You can imagine this as education justice. But the the essential idea is that, um, you know, these children are, are pretty vulnerable and they're being exposed to pollution and, uh, you know, they're hiring computers or not. And it, it does seem like something that could perpetuate the cycle of poverty and be a mechanism through which poverty produces, you know, intergenerational disadvantage. So far, we've been looking at this in light of the very negative effects on cognitive development of already vulnerable children. But Persico says the flip side of this is that her results show that the EPA cleanup of these Superfund sites makes a big difference and that her results add another dimension to thinking about the benefits of the Superfund program, especially for disadvantaged kids. Previous cost-benefit analyses of Superfund sites Typically, we're looking at things like reduced cancer incidences and um, and also the, the effect that designating something a Superfund site has on housing values. It tends to have actually kind of a negative effect on housing values to, to have a local toxic waste site be designated Superfund. And, and that makes some amount of sense, right? But, um, but there are, you know, maybe other positive benefits that hadn't previously been fully explored. And one such benefit is the reduced incidence of learning disabilities. And so what we did as a sort of way to conservatively estimate a cost-benefit analysis is we looked at um, how long the Superfund program would take to pay for itself 
in terms of reduced special ed costs alone. So special ed kids cost about 1.6 times as much to educate as typically developing kids. Um, and so that's also kind of conservative because that's the cost for specific learning disabilities. And some of these children might have more costly needs than that. Um, but we find that the Superfund program would pay for itself in about 38 years, just in terms of reduced uh, special ed costs. Um, and so that doesn't include cancer or any of the health benefits or any of the moral things or, um, you know, we don't include things like dropout. So kids with learning disabilities are more likely to drop out of high school. We don't include crime. So uh, the 38 years is a really, really conservative cost benefit analysis. Um, but we just wanted to point out that, um, that this program actually might be significantly more cost effective than we'd previously imagined. Many thanks to Claudia Persico for sharing this work with us. If you'd like to learn more, the paper called Inequality Before Birth, The Developmental Consequences of Environmental Toxicants is NBER working paper number 22263 and is available online. This podcast was supported as part of a grant from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office of the Assistant Secretary for Planning and Evaluation, but its contents don't necessarily represent the opinions or policies of that office or the Institute for Research on Poverty. To catch new episodes of the Poverty Research and Policy Podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or your favorite podcast app. You can find all of our past episodes on the Institute for Research on Poverty website. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 